Praise God. Don't you love Jesus this morning? You know there's nobody like Jesus. <laughs> there's nobody else that can, that can give us a clean slate. Imagine that. Imagine all the people in the world that wish that they could start over. You ever wish you could just start over? You know, I wish that when I started having children. <laughs> and I made so many mistakes, you know. I said, oh, I was 17 years old when I had my first baby. I got pregnant at 16. And um, I'll just tell you just a little bit about my story. My dad was an alcoholic, and uh, my mom was sober, but uh, she had lots of men. My parents never divorced. They were married 52 years when she died. But every single day and every single night, it was a, a fight in our home. And every night you had to get up and try to save my mother from being killed because my dad would be drunk and kicking her and knocking her on the floor. And every morning we'd have to get up at six o'clock to get ready for school after we'd been up an, until about three. And I used to think I was really stupid. I never thought that I could learn anything because as an adult I realized a child can't learn anything when they only get three hours sleep a night, you know, because of the fighting. And my parents had five children, they had four children, but we had a cousin that lived with us because even though my dad was an alcoholic, my my aunt, his sister, was a worse alcoholic than, her, than him, so we had to raise her son. And so my, my mother found out she was pregnant with me. Her baby was my sister, who was seven years old. And the last thing she wanted was another baby. My oldest brother was 16 when he found out my mom was pregnant, and he tore up all my baby clothes because he said, oh, the last thing we need in this house is another brat. And so when I was born, my mom didn't want to name me. She didn't have a name for me, and she didn't want to name me because she didn't want me. And you know, I used to hate my name because I, I never felt chosen. You know, you feel like everybody has a name that is meaningful to them. My name wasn't meaningful to me. My brother named me after his girlfriend and his friend's girlfriend that I never met. And one time in the middle of the night, years and years ago, the Lord woke me and he said this to me. He said, Jeremiah 1.5. And I got up and I looked up Jeremiah 1.5 and it said, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb and I called you by name. And I called you as a prophet to the nations. You know, our God redeems everything. And because my parents never cared what I did. I don't, I don't know if my parents ever looked at my report card in my life. <laughs> there was never anything. My mother brought me home from the hospital and the first day that I came home, she gave me to my sister and she said, you raise her. I don't want her. My sister threw me across the room. But you know what? When I was 14, 13, when I was 12, I started dating boys. And dating boys and being with boys felt like love to me. It was the only kind of love I ever knew. And by the time I was 16, I was pregnant. And I was pregnant by one of the nicest boys in town. He stole the car at 15. <laughs> and they sent him to military school to uh, rehabilitate him. 
So he came home from, re, from military school, and one night he and his buddies got drunk, and he was, he was the driver of the car. And so the police started chasing him, and they were going to outrun the police. So they set up a roadblock for him, and they went through the roadblock. They set up another roadblock for them, and he, they, he went around the roadblock. They set up another roadblock, and he went around that one. And they finally had to shoot his tires to stop them, and his car rolled, and instead of just getting out and going to jail, they decided they would act like they're all hurt so they could go to the hospital. And um, I had lied to my mother that night because I was going out with a guy that was a lot older than me, and I knew she wouldn't let she wouldn't want me to go out with that guy. So I said, I am going to go out with Bobby McIntyre tonight. So the next morning was Saturday morning. I'm asleep, and my mother comes running into my room. She'd already been down to have breakfast. Were you with that McIntyre kid last night? I said, yes. She said, were you with him when he went through three roadblocks and they had to shoot his tires? I said, you know, when you lie, you got to keep lying. I said, oh, no, I was with him earlier. She said, was he, drink? was he drunk? I said, no, he wasn't even drinking. <laughs> And two weeks later, I'm at the Dairy Queen, and, and my dad is talking to the grandpa of one of the other boys, and, that, and the grandpa's saying, they said those boys were drunk. My, my grandson said they weren't drunk. My dad said, well, my daughter was with the McIntyre kid, and he hadn't even had a drink. And then the grandfather said, will you testify to that in court? I thought, oh my gosh, this is getting worse. <laughs> I said yes, but I didn't have to because those boys knew they were drunk. And so he was one of the nicest guys. He's raised in the church, but the last thing he wanted to be was a Christian, and the last thing he wanted to ever do is go to church. His dad was an elder in the Nazarene church, and he was raised in that church, but his dad didn't live well. You know, he wasn't an example of a Christian. His mother wasn't an example of a Christian. And so, you know, we, um, we just... We just grew up, <laughs> and one day I found out I was pregnant. I was 16 years old, and I was pregnant. My mother was going to send me away. It was 1964. In 1964, you know, I tell girls now, yeah, I got pregnant at 16. Well, that's, you know, oh, well, hey, no problem. <laughs> but in 1964, you had a big scarlet letter on you, and uh, my mom, I, I, he came over, I called a friend, and I said, tell Bobby to come to my house, and he came, and my mother beat him up. She's beating him up. He didn't even know why he's getting beat up. He, and he looked at me, and I said, I'm pregnant, and my mom said that, yeah, yeah, and I'm sending her away, and he said, nah, we'll just get married. That was my proposal. So romantic. <laughs> he was always a romantic kind of guy. But when, after I married him, I really loved him for about five days. And uh, <laughs> then, you know, then he wanted me to cook his dinner. And he wanted me to wash his underwear. And I thought, who is this guy? You know, he used to play football, and he was a football star, and he was good looking, and he was a lot of fun. Now he was getting uglier every day. And... <laughs> And, and I was pregnant, so I just decided I'm going to stay with him until I could get this figured out. And it was very difficult for me to get it figured out. <laughs> but I, I had a little boy. I was 17. 
And then before I knew it, I, I, I guess I didn't know how people get pregnant. I got pregnant again. And I had a little girl. I was 19 when I had her. And I, as, when I was pregnant with her, I began to feel for the first time in my life. My husband's family knew the way of salvation. But they were so angry that he had married me. Because you see, I was poor white trash. And they were somebody in the town. And his sister said to me one time, you know, it isn't that we didn't like you. It's that we wanted Bobby to marry a nice Christian girl. I said, Nancy, a nice Christian girl wouldn't have married your brother. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) let's face it. And so um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I began to have this feeling in my stomach. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us that God puts a sense of eternity in our hearts. We're all built with that. We're all created with that sense of eternity. And in my whole life, I, I, never, had, I never had any thought of what, what would happen to me when I died. I never had any thought of what would happen at all. I just knew that, I knew Jesus died, but I thought he died for those good people that sat in church. And my family wasn't good, and I wasn't a good person. So he surely didn't die for me. And so I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with him. But when I began to feel like I'm going to go to hell, and I, was, and I was scared to death, I just had such fear. And, you know, God always provides. The Jehovah Witness came to my door. <laughs> And they told me the best news. They said, there is no hell. Oh, man. That was great news. And so I started studying with them. And when I would be with them, and they would tell me that, I would believe it. But as soon as I would go back to my house, shut the door, the feeling would come back. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. And, and, you know, it was 1965 when I was studying with them. And it was... They didn't have their own Bible at that time. Now they've changed things in their, in their Bible that would lead you astray. But they studied out of the King James. So I was reading the King James Bible day and night. My husband was caught between a rock and a hard place because he didn't want to be a Christian. He didn't want to go to church, but he knew that Jehovah Witness was a cult and he didn't want me to be that. So every time I would say, I'm going to the Kingdom Hall tomorrow, he'd say, no, we're going over to this Nazarene church. And so long story short, I came across the scripture one day all by myself where Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I would cry. I would just sit and cry. I didn't know what that meant. I was like, Nicodemus, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? How do you do this? And so I went back to my Jehovah Witness meeting, my little Bible study, and I said, what does this mean? And they said, it's not for today. And there were so many things that I would ask them through that year, what does this mean? And they would say, it's not for today. It's not for today. And I got really angry. You know, something just rose up in me. And I said, you people taught me this is Jehovah God's word. But you you tell me this is not for today. This is not for today. This is for the future. This is for today. I said, how do you know? Where does it say that? Tell me where you see that in the Bible. And they just looked at me. And so then I called my husband's sister and I said, can you tell me what this means? And she didn't want to tell me what it meant. She was a Christian and she went to church and she, she loved God. Do you know, sometimes people are begging us to tell them what the gospel is. 
and we, we won't tell them. <laughs> I was begging for somebody. I, I had two little babies, and all I could think of was, I don't want to raise my children the way I was raised. And I don't want to go to hell. And I don't want to be like my mother. And I don't want to be like my father. And I, I want to, I want to know how to be a better person. I didn't know about being saved. And she said, well, why don't you call that pastor that, um, where Bobby takes you to church sometime? So I called him, made an appointment with him, sat in the car for an hour, scared to death to go in. The reason I was scared is because I thought that, w- that as soon as he realized that I'm not a good person, he was going ta- to send me out because church is for good people. And I wasn't a good person. And so I finally walked into his office. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, I want you to know I'm not a good person. And I wasn't raised in a good home. My, people, my family's not good people. And I began to cry. You see, my parents, they, they weren't just not good people. My parents were friends with Bonnie and Clyde in the 30s. My parents were friends with Pretty Boy Floyd and Machine Gun Kelly. And so that's the kind of people my family was. And he just didn't ask me another question. He started telling me about his life. And he told me that he was an alcoholic and he was a gambler and that he had gambled his children's milk money away. I thought, oh my gosh, he's worse than me. And I, I thought, do these people realize who their pastor is? Do they understand that he's a person just like me? You know, and then he told me something. That to this day, this was September 1st, 1966, that I sat in that office. I was 19 years old. And I never can think about this that I don't cry. He said, Beverly, if you would have been the only person on earth, Jesus still would have come and died for you. Can you imagine that? Somebody that wasn't supposed to be born, somebody that no one wanted to name, somebody that was told every day of my life, I, I don't know why you were born. My mother would never said to me that I had a purpose in my life or that there was anything that I could ever do. No one ever said to me, do you want to go to college? What do you want to be when you grow up? Just that I don't know why you were born. And there is a God that would come to earth and he would die on a cross just for me. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine that it's not, it's not for those good people in church. It's not just for, it's not just for Pastor Flaherty. It's not just for, for people that somebody cherished and wanted. It would come for me. It would come for me. And he said, do you want to accept him as your savior? I said, who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want this? And I gave my life to Jesus that day. I didn't even really know what I was doing. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what you called it. I didn't know anything. My husband was keeping my baby so I could go to to visit that pastor. And when I walked in and my face was all red, he looked up at me and he knew he was doomed. (laughs) 
He said, you get saved? <laughs> I said, I guess. <laughs> but you know, I, I, was so, I was so in love with Jesus. <laughs> I was so in love with Jesus that I just thought the whole world has to know this. The next day, I led my neighbor to the Lord. Then a couple of weeks, I, I, went, I used to go door to door because remember, I had been Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> And I didn't know what nice Christian women were supposed to do until the little old ladies of the church got hold of me and told me, honey, you don't have to go door to door to tell people about Jesus. What you need to do is get that makeup off your face. And you need to let your hair grow. And you, you need to not wear pants. And those sleeveless dresses, sweetheart, you got to take them off because now you're a nice Christian woman. I thought, what? what in the world you got to be ugly to be a Christian? <laughs> I mean, I, who knew that you had to be ugly to be a Christian? When I used to talk to my sister about getting the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and she used to say to me, well, I wouldn't mind getting it if I didn't have to be as ugly as you. <laughs> and so, so um, I would knock on doors and I would say, hi, what do you think about Jesus? And they would tell me what they thought about Jesus, and I would talk to them. My next convert was this little old man, and, and, and I asked him that question. He said, oh, I tell you, I think he was the king of the Jews. I said, he's my king, and he wants to be your king. And he started crying. I said, you want him to be your king? He said, yes. And so he gave his life to Jesus. I prayed. He prayed after me. I was about two weeks old in the Lord. And and I, you know, I was really knowledgeable about the Bible. I remember one day I was, I was mowing the grass because my kids were taking a nap and I had to get it mowed before they woke up from their nap. And I, and I have been reading the book of Luke. And, and as I'm mowing, I thought, I've just got to stop mowing. I've got to get back in there to see how that book ends. I didn't know it ended the same way as Matthew and Mark. I, I, I thought it might end a little bit different than that. And, and so I was, I was very knowledgeable knowledgeable about the things of God. And so I said to him, I said, listen, here's the deal. Jesus will not tell the father that you did this unless you come to my church on Sunday morning and you go to the altar and then he'll tell the father that you're a Christian. He said, okay. And he came to my church and I took him to the altar and he, and he, and he let, so Jesus could tell the father. It wasn't very long. I had, I had a whole cul-de-sac of women that I led to the Lord and they asked me to be their Bible teacher. Well, of course I would be their Bible teacher. I mean, why wouldn't I be their Bible teacher? Because I was very knowledgeable. I knew enough to take the notes from what the pastor was preaching on Sunday morning and then go to my congregation on Thursday and preach to my congregation. People have asked me, when did you feel the call into ministry? Well, I didn't know you were supposed to not feel the call into ministry. I've been ministering ever since the moment I got saved because when you find someone that loves you, that loves you so much that he even let you wear makeup. He even let you put on pants. When you find somebody so much that would hang on a cross and shed his blood so that his blood could take away all the crud that's inside of you, you are, you're called into the ministry. You're just called into the ministry. I, 
I have a sermon here, and I don't know how much of it I'm going to read these notes and give to you, but I feel like God wants me to speak into this church. I feel like he wants me to share with you um, just just about how God's wanting us as the body of Christ to break through that it's time for us to break through some things. It's time for, you know, for years, we, we go to counseling and healing and deliverance and all of this. I went through two years of deliverance when I got saved. I tell people, if you live in hell, hell gets in you. And you got to get hell out of you, you know. And I, and I, I went through ministry, but we, we go, some of us go through ministry for the rest of our lives. We get healed, we get delivered, we get healed, we get delivered, we get healed, we get delivered. There's a story that I want to tell you, and I was sharing this with the ladies yesterday, but I want to share it with you today. And it, to me, it exemplifies um, the breakthrough that we get on the day that we get saved. It exemplifies the breakthrough that we get when, when uh, we give our life to Jesus and, and how God absolutely sets us free. Because you know what? On that day, we really are set free. It, it, says, it says that Jesus made a public spectacle on the cross of the enemy. And so there's a, there's a girl in Africa where I go. I go to West Africa. And um, she is a pastor's daughter. She had saved herself from marriage, and she lived a, a pure and clean and godly life. And one night, she was at choir practice. And in Burkina Faso is the third poorest country in the world. They don't, many, many people don't have cars. They have bicycles, or they have motor scooters, or they walk. Or they have a, a donkey and a cart, so they can haul their stuff in it. And so she... Um, she was at choir practice, and she was walking home one night, and it was dark, and three guys attacked her, and two of them held her down, and one raped her, and so she was so shamed and so humiliated that this had happened to her, so she went home, and she decided, I'll never tell anybody that this happened, because it's too shameful, and, and so it turned out she was pregnant, and then she had to tell somebody. She told her parents. And at first, her parents were so angry. And they, they, they didn't want to believe that she was really raped. They said, what have you done? You know. And she said, I, I didn't do anything. I, I, they raped me. These, this boy raped me. I promise you, I didn't do anything. So they believed her. But then they had to go in front of the church and tell the church that she's pregnant. I had a missionary lady tell me one time in Africa, don't tell the Africans that you got pregnant at 16. I said, why not? She said, because that's, that's really taboo here. I said, it was taboo there too. I said, but that, I'm not that same person. I'm a different person. I don't have to be ashamed of my sin because it's not my sin anymore. It, it, it got washed away in the blood of Jesus. I don't have to have shame in my life. You know, I said, I said, I will tell anybody that the effects of sin and what it does and what Jesus can do to get to take care of you. 
So she was relegated to the back of the church. I mean, they didn't want her to do anything. She wasn't allowed to speak in church. She wasn't allowed to do anything. She she had a little boy. When the little boy was three years old, she went to a nearby church and she went to a revival. And the evangelist invited people up and they often come up on the stage to give their testimony. He invited people to come and give their testimony. So she went up and she shared how God had taking care of her and her son. She shared how she had gotten raped and and that it was so shameful for her, but God had redeemed it and that she had a beautiful son and that that he was with her and taking care of of her and her son. When she finished her testimony, the evangelist closed his Bible and he picked his Bible up and he walked over to her and he said, this is your Bible. He said, I raped you. He said, the night that I raped you, you left your Bible laying on the ground, and I took your Bible home, and I got saved reading your Bible. And he said, I want to marry you, and I want to give our son a father and a name. And she married him. She married him because she knew he wasn't the man that raped her. She married him because she knew that he was redeemed, that he wasn't that same person that had raped her. And so often I hear stories like that or I see things like that in Africa because there's something that they believe that often we as sophisticated Americans have a difficult time believing. They believe that at this moment they're this person and when they step over and they allow Jesus to cleanse them, that person dies. They believe that when they go into the water to be baptized, that they go into that water one person and they leave that old man at the bottom of that water and they're resurrected to a brand new life with Jesus. Doesn't that change everything for us? Doesn't that change everything? It changes everything. You know, when I got saved in 1966, I got filled with the Holy Spirit in 1969. In those days, we we didn't have counseling. We just jerked demons out of people. I've been in churches where they would have wash tubs. You know, remember, I don't know if any of you old enough remember those big wash tubs we used to have with ringer washers. But they'd have them lined up in the front of the church. And, you know, first, when you first go to a church like that, you don't know what in the world they're for. But you soon find out it's for people getting deliverance so they can volunteer in those tubs we didn't we didn't have all the things that we have now we just we just jerked demons out and we just went on and we believed that when we went into the water that the old man was left under that water and that we were resurrected to a brand new life you see we have had in the body of Christ we have had what the Israelites had when they were in Egypt they were slaves for 400 years They were slaves for 400 years. And when Moses came to take them out of that slavery, were they happy? Were they happy about it? They they didn't even believe him. They wanted to go. And, you know, I mean, imagine all the things that happened and the miracles that happened. And and they still were having a hard time believing they're really going to get out of Egypt. 
They got mad at Moses because he made the Pharaoh mad and then they lost their straw and at least they had straw before. Sometimes we settle for the straw when God's trying to give us a banqueting table. And so they, they finally, you know, they finally marched out. You know what is interesting to me? I, I just, you know, we have a town, we have a city in Arizona called Scottsdale, and Scottsdale's where all the people that have lots of money live. My daughter lives there, which I'm very happy because if I ever need anything, my daughter lives in Scottsdale. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going into the richest part of Madison? And knocking on the door and saying, you know, I'm leaving Madison today and I'm, 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 I'm going away. Could I have all your silver and your gold and uh, anything else that you have of value in your house? Would you mind giving it to me? Oh, of course. Here, take it. <laughs> I think by then the Egyptians were so scared that they, that they, just, that they, just, gave, they just gave it to them. But, you know, we are kind of living in slavery right now and we are being intimidated by the enemy the enemy is trying to intimidate and trying to cause us to have some fear. And so we have, we have wondered what, what's going to happen. Everyone's, everyone's talking about the political scene. And we don't often talk, at our church, we don't talk about it. And we, you know, when I, was, when I was young, you voted, and then you went on, everybody loved everybody. It didn't matter who we were or what we were. And it still doesn't really matter, you guys. Because the, there's no politician that is our savior. There's nobody that, that, that can change our lives except Jesus. And Jesus is our answer. And we really are the leaders of this world. You know, we really are the, we really are the leaders. We really are those that are free people. And we really are the ones that God has called. And so we see all the shaking and all of that going on, and we are, we're afraid. So Moses, Moses led those, those Egyptian, those uh, Israelites. He led them out of Egypt, but they didn't understand that even when they were slavery, they were in slavery. It tells us in, um, let, me, let me see. It tells us in Exodus 1.12 this. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and expanded so that the Egyptians were vexed and alarmed because of the Israelites. They were vexed and alarmed because of the Israelites. And it said that the more, that, the more they oppressed them, the more that they multiplied and expanded. The word for that is, Peretz, and it means to break out, to burst out, to grow, to increase, and to be opened. And what the Israelites couldn't see is that even though they were slaves, and even though they had a fear of the Egyptians, and even though they didn't know what was going to ever happen to them next, and they had to work hard, and they had to work as slaves, and they had to keep working and keep working and keep working, they didn't look to see that the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Egyptians put them into slavery, that they were actually bursting forth. They were breaking out. They were multiplying. They had more children. They, the Israelites, were, I mean, the Egyptians were afraid of them, you guys. 
They were afraid of them because they could see that they were breaking out. And right now we live in a world that, that the enemy is trying to use people to, uh, to oppress us, to say that we're going to have to stop this. We're going to have to stop that. We're living in a world that says, well, the church has become obsolete. You try to, you talk to people about going to church or being in church. Yesterday, I asked a, a, I asked a lady, that in a, in a store, I said, um, you know, do you go to church? Where do you go to church? She said, well, I don't go to church. But she started to tell me how spiritual, that she's spiritual. People will tell you how spiritual they are. The spiritual that they are is new age. They've bought into this new age concept and it's witchcraft and, and, and it's, it's oppressing them, but they think that they're free. They think that they have freedom, but the enemy is afraid of us. He's scared of us. Just like the Egyptians, they were afraid of God's people. They were really afraid of them. And so they tried in every way to oppress them. You know, Pharaoh said to go and, and, and uh, kill, all the, kill all the babies. And, and the, mother hid, the mother hid Moses in the bushes. And Moses grew up. And Moses became the, the one that went back to save them. But when Moses did that, let me find that scripture. It... it when Moses did that and he took them, they were mad when they got to that sea. And that's what I want to talk to you about. In Micah 2, it says, the breaker goes before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. So, so the, the, the breaker went before them. And I'm telling you, God is coming right now. Jesus is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming as a breaker. He is coming as a breaker. Do you know that's one of the names for Jesus? One of the names for Jesus is breaker through. And, one, and he is coming as a breaker to break through. Some of us here in this room, we don't know how we're going to pay bills. We don't know. Our finances are in a mess. We don't know how we're going to, to, to deal with our children. Our children are in a mess. Some of us have children on drugs. Some of us have children that hate us. Some of us have children that are sick. Some some of us are so sick and we don't know how we'll ever get well. We don't know what's ahead of us. And when they got to that Red Sea, when they got to it and they looked at it and, and, and they couldn't get across it, it, they were caught at that and they looked behind them and the Egyptians were chasing them. Listen, you guys, the people that were scared to death of them were chasing them. And they're screaming that they're going to kill the Israelites. So Moses stood there. And what did the people say? This is what they said. They said, Moses, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? You, you took us out of Egypt. What, was there no graves, no graveyard in Egypt? Was there no place that we could be buried in Egypt? So you brought us out here to kill us so, we could, so that we could die out here and be buried here? Why did you do this to us? You know what, this is the thing about God's people. So often we, we, we spend our time complaining Wondering, how is this ever going to happen? I can't see how it would happen. And so we're upset. You know, I was telling, I was telling the ladies yesterday, have you ever tried to argue with God? <laughs> I have. He doesn't argue. Have you ever noticed that? 
He says one thing, and then when you say, you know, you say, well, well, no. You know, when, when, I, when I first started going to Two Rivers, we started in January of 2014, and I'd been through 17 years of pastors just maligning me. I had one pastor tell me what I hate about you is that you tell my people they can prophesy, but they can't. And I had pastors say that, that um, I tried to make Gary Kenneman's church Pentecostal, and he said he'll never give another woman that much authority. And I thought, wow, we started out Pentecostal, but somehow we changed and I didn't get the memo. And so I, you know, and if that's the worst indictment that is against me. And so when, for about two years, people would come to my meetings and come to, to, to my service. I would, I would do conferences and, and meetings, and not in church, but at my home or in hotels. And people would come and say to me, over and over, you know, I think you would fit at Two Rivers Church. At first, I didn't even know what Two Rivers Church was. But do you know that the, the, the very year that Tom Alexander came to start that church in, in uh, Gilbert, Arizona, in my house, I was having a prayer meeting every Thursday night. And the purpose of the prayer meeting was, the, was, was some of us praying that God would send a church into the East Valley of Phoenix that wanted the move of God. And so, you know, God was putting that together, what we didn't even know. Do you know that God's always putting things together and we often don't even recognize it. We don't even know that God is putting it together. And so we, you know, people kept telling me. And so finally I said to my husband, you know, people tell me I'd fit it at Two Rivers. I said, let me go over there. You stay here. You're in the choir. I just acted like a deaf mute for a long, long time. I'd smile at people and never talk at church because I didn't want to cause trouble for a pastor. And he said, no, he said, we're going to leave today. And I said, I'm not asking you to leave. He said, well, at four o'clock this morning, I told the Lord, if we're supposed to stay here, give me a sign today. And if we're supposed to leave here, give me a sign today because I have to sign that I'll be in the choir one more year if we stay. So we left, we went to Two Rivers, we never looked back. But I was so grateful because he was from Wisconsin and he didn't know me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he would smile at me and my husband would say, let's go talk to the pastor. Let's, you know, let's go talk to him. And I'd say, no. No, because at least now he smiles at me. And, and I don't want him to know anything about me. And so uh, one morning I was having my devotions. It was in May. We'd been there since January. I'm, with the, I'm just spending my time with the Lord. And the Lord said, when I send you to minister, where do I send you? I said, Father, you send me overseas. He just was silent. I thought, that's not the right answer. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, what's the right answer? I said, well, Lord, I told you a long time ago that I won't go and minister unless I go under a pastor because I believe prophetic people are supposed to stay under a pastor. And he said, I don't require less of that of you here. And I was angry. Require less of me here? You don't, you mean you're asking me to work under a pastor here? You know how, you know I can't work under a pastor here. He's just silent again. So I thought, well, you know, I have to prove to Bobby and God that, Tom Alexander's going to hate me. So I said, to, I said to Bobby, I said, okay, let's go talk to him. Let's go, let's go. So I saw at the, next, the next service, Tom was walking by me, and I said, we'd like to come and talk with you. He said, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you guys. So we go to dinner with he and Teresa, and, and uh, my husband does the talking. 
My husband talks different than I talk. He says to him, well, I just need you to know pastors hate my wife. He said, she has a missions ministry. She, goes, she does missions and she's not going to stop and she's not going to give up her missions ministry. And she prophesies and she's not going to stop prophesying, but she just won't prophesy here. And, and she prays. She's an intercessor and they don't like that. So Tom says, I think you're our kind of people. I think you're our flavor. I think we want you. We walked away. I said, well, he doesn't want to know me yet. <laughs> and so now I've been there 10 years. But you know what? God has set, I, want to just, I just want to speak to your church for a little bit. God has set before you an open door. There's an open door sitting before every single person in this church and also collectively for this church. God has set an open door, but that door does not look open. Because let me tell you what happens when God sets an open door. The same things that happened to those Israelites when they stood at that Red Sea and the, and the, the, the military was behind them. There seemed to be no escape. And open doors that God opens. He says he sets before us an open door that no man can shut. And we expect that door to be so, swung so open we can't miss it. But there are two demonic things that stand in front of any open door in the spirit realm that God puts before you. One is a spirit of fear. And right now the body of Christ is covered, filled with a spirit of fear. And it, fear is always a demon, you guys. It's always a demon. Fear, it, God's, Jesus said, or, or the, Paul said, I, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And so when a door is open, it will look like it's closed and it will feel like it's closed. And what we do over and over and over is that we back off. We just back off because it's, because that fear says you can go this far but you can't go any further you can go this far but you can't go any further and so we don't know how to go across that that line where the enemy says you can't go we don't know how and because we don't know how we stop and we back up the other spirit that the enemy will put in front of us and you really need to understand this spirit it is the same spirit that the lady had in Acts 16 where she followed Paul around and she kept saying this is a man of God listen to this man of God listen to this man of God here's a man of God he's going to tell you all things listen to this man of God Paul finally got mad turned around and rebuked her and cast that spirit out of her. The Bible tells us in our translations that it's a spirit of divination, but I'm telling you, it is the Python spirit. It is a Python spirit. You can, you can look that up. The first time I, I spoke of that spirit at Two Rivers, Tom said, that's not in the Bible. I said, please you know, research it. He did. He said, oh yeah, it's in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, a, the, the Python spirit is the same spirit that people that are psychics, people that are in new age, people that can tell the future, your future, your past, and all of that by the, the power of the enemy. That is that same spirit. And this is what that spirit does. It sucks the life out of us. 
It sucks the life out of us because a psychic, a person that operates under that spirit of Python, if they're not speaking life, they're not speaking the life of God, they're not speaking encouragement, comfort, or strengthening us. They are sucking the life out of you. They'll tell you all the bad things that are going to happen, all the bad things that used to happen, all the things that could happen if you did this. That woman wasn't bragging on Paul. That woman was mocking. Paul. She was mocking him. And Paul had had enough of the mockery. You know, the woman that is the psychic in New York, and I don't know if she still does, but she used to have a TV show. She says that the, how she got her gift is that one night a giant snake came into her bedroom. Now, whether in the spirit or in the flesh, don't ask me that. I'm just telling you what I heard her say. She, that a giant snake crawled into her bedroom, wrapped itself around her body, and when it, when it left and it went out of the door, she had that gift of, of being a psychic. So you see, right now, we are living in a world that is filled with that kind of thing. If we think that witches do not come into our services, we are really naive. If we think that there aren't people that come in to mock us and to come into to try to take the life out of a church, we're very naive. And so I feel like for, for, you know, at our church, we call this Flaherty's Church. We don't even know the name of the church. We call it Flaherty's Church. <laughs> so I believe at this church, at Flaherty's Church, at this church, that God set before you an open door and he's given you the keys to this city. He has given you the keys to this city. He has given you, the, in, he has given you an assignment of how to take the city not just take the Christians, but to take the city. And I believe that there have been people that have been among you that have spoken what they would call a prophetic word, but that prophetic word has been a spirit of Python that has sucked the life out of many of you. I believe that many of you that are sitting here today, that your children, it looks hopeless for your children. Your children are on drugs. Your children are out there in the world, have denied Christ. Christ and given up the given up the things of God that they the life has been sucked out of them by the spirit of python the spirit of python is in the school systems the spirit of python is everywhere around us but let me tell you something God has set before us an open door that no man can shut and all that we have to do is keep walking we have to keep walking and when when the enemy says you can't go any further you take one more step and when the enemy says you can't go any further, you take one more step. And you keep taking one more step until you see the salvation of the Lord in the land of the living. And that's where you're headed. Yeah.